So some of you uh, will know and some of you will not that today marks the 77th anniversary of D-Day. 77th anniversary of D-Day. Um, I have been, for whatever reason, fascinated all my life uh, with World War II and have been um, a student of it and have loved uh, all the opportunities I've had to be able to visit uh, with men and women who were alive uh, during that time, and especially those who served during that time, it's, it's fascinating to me, but um, we as a nation and as a world owe such a tremendous debt um, to those who paid such a heavy price um, to rid the world of the greatest growing tyranny that we had ever seen um, in modern history at that time. So I would just encourage you today, uh, if you have uh, family or maybe you have friends uh, who are still with you and are of that age, uh, reach out and, and spend a little time visiting with them today. Ask them about their memories uh, of that day. All right, so we continue this morning our series through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be again in Matthew chapter 7, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be covering uh, a passage, uh, a number of verses here that are actually the most quoted among non-believers. They're the most quoted Bible verses among non-Christians. So it's going to be interesting for us to look at, and it's a, a complex topic that Jesus is dealing with, and there's a lot of confusion around what he means and what he doesn't mean here, beginning in Matthew chapter 7. So what I want to do is just start with chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, most of us in here have heard someone say, or maybe you've said yourself something like this, Man, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Right? This idea of judgment is a big one. And in Jesus' day, as in ours, the term judge was multifaceted. It was used in a lot of different ways to speak of an, an actual judge, someone in a position of judicial authority, to speak of casting disparagement and, and derision on people, uh, to speak of just defining things. There were all kinds of of ways that this word was used. But I want to tell you what Jesus is not saying right off the bat. He's not saying that you and I are not to be wise and discerning in our dealings with people. He's not saying to cast out wisdom and discernment. Uh, sometimes when someone is uh, coming at you or coming at someone and telling them not to judge them, they'll, they'll pull all the way up to like Old King's English and say, judge not lest ye be judged. That's the only thing 
that they can quote from the King James Bible. But they can quote that, judge not lest ye be judged. And in our day, this has taken on a sort of wildfire effect and gone even further. Because in the last six to eight years, we've turned a cultural corner in our nation where it's not just about not judging, but we've come up with this idea of your truth and my truth. Your reality and my reality, the Oprah effect. She helped kind of champion some of this language. Well, that may be your truth, but let me tell you my truth. Can I just say with all candor, you don't have truth. You have experience. You have thoughts. I don't have truth. Truth doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on you. Truth isn't different based on where or how we grow up or what we've experienced. Well, that's your reality. This is mine. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth, but simply truth. And all thinking people know this if we're intellectually honest and willing to admit it. So I just want to encourage you not to confuse truth with experience or perspective. We've all had different experiences, haven't we? We all have different perspectives on things. But don't confuse those with truth. Truth is that which sits over our experiences and our perspectives and passes accurate, faithful judgment on them. And we know, we know there are absolute truths. All people know this, even those that argue against them. You know that when you plant an apple seed, that if anything grows from that, it will be an apple tree. Have you ever planted the seed to an apple tree, or let's bring it here, to a peach tree and had a lime tree sprout up? Anybody? Anybody ever planted a peach seed and had a pecan tree grow from it? No, because part of what the physical realm is doing is testifying to us there about the character and nature of God, about the fact that there are things that are simply created truths. They exist and they reveal to us or are intended to reveal to us the goodness and the consistency of God. You will always get, if you get anything when you plant seeds, you will get that which is in keeping with what you planted. Now some of you know you can plant whatever and you're not going to get anything, right? You just don't have that gift. And if you get a little something, you will soon kill it. But we know this across other realms. No matter who I talk to or how they feel about God or this idea of ultimate truth, they always believe that it is always wrong for you to steal from them. Well, how humorous. If there are no ultimate truths, then it cannot always be wrong for someone to steal from them. But anybody who has ever been the object of theft believes that it is a universal truth that one is not supposed to steal from someone else. We've talked about this. People always feel like it's universally true that someone should not commit adultery with their spouse. Right? There's never a question about that. They always believe that is universally true. So this idea of judgment is not about whether or not there are universal truths. What Jesus is saying here, let's look back at verses 1 and 2 again. Do not judge or you too will be 
judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, we're going to look at the wider context of some of this issue around judge and judgment in a few minutes. But what Jesus is saying here is not that you and I are not to be wise and discerning, or even to, to draw in close to a good friend who's a follower of Jesus, who we notice walking into patterns of sin that are going to destroy them, and in love trying to wake them up. What he's saying is you and I are not to pass absolute determinations on the lives of others. You and I are not to pass absolute determinations on the lives of others. We're not to say you are completely now and forevermore throughout eternity useless, worthless, condemned. I'll share with you just a few reasons why we are to avoid that in a minute. But Jesus says basically, and can I just tell you, not only at the eternal level is this true, but it's true in the physical sense of our day-to-day lives when he says, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. With the measure that you measure others, you'll be measured with. Have you ever been around someone who was just so fast to judge and hold everyone to such a high standard? That has a unique way of coming back around to you, does it not? It does. It does. New Testament scholar Don Carson said, Do not assume the place of God by declaring you have the right to stand in judgment over all. Do not do it in order to avoid being called to account by God whose place you usurp. Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and some lesser successful books, but a great thinker, said, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. Now that's funny, but isn't that true? We judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their behavior. Let me just give you a few practical reasons real quickly why you and I are not to judge others in this way of making final determinations about their life. One, it's not the time. It's not the time. They're still breathing. And I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful That as long as I'm still breathing, God is still working on me. And God is still working in me. And God is still showing me grace. God is still giving me mercy. It's not the time for judgment. Second, um, just on a basic, honest level, you're not competent. And I'm not competent to judge people. We don't know enough. We can't see into the heart of someone else. Now, I don't want us to be confused here. Jesus actually did say several times in different ways that it will be very clear who are followers of his. So he's not saying to be confused or to to live with this kind of pretend thing that we live with now where we just say, well, you can never really know. Jesus said, oh, actually, you can know. They have a unique love for one another. They have a unique love for me that causes them to live with a desire to be obedient to me and to walk in my truth. Jesus said you can know those who are his followers. But we are to avoid these kinds of statements of finality about someone's heart and life. So it's not the time, you're not competent, 
And third, I'll start to say second, that'd be third. Third, it's not your role. It's not my role ever. Like when, when judgment time does come, guess who's not included on the committee? Actually, God help us. There will not be committees in heaven. Um, guess who will not be included on that panel or that team? Us, right? God doesn't need help there. Parents, how many times have you ever told a child while you were driving or you were about to do something, look, I don't need your help. I know what the speed limit is. That's usually what I'm saying. Right? I don't need, God does not need our help. It's not the time. We're not competent to do it. And it is not our role. It is not our role. But Jesus goes on and he, he tells kind of a, um, an abstract funny story. He gives an illustration that's both hyperbole and just it's meant, it's intended to be humorous. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And he says, how can you say here, let me get that speck out of your eye while all the time you've got this plank sticking out of yours? And he uses language here of, of the simple dust that you and I may get in our eyes from time to time and the kind of large pieces of timber that were used in his day um, to, to prop up roofs and to build structures with. And he's saying, why, why are you walking around with a tree sticking out your eye and you're trying to help somebody who just needs a little visine, Right? How about you pull the tree out your eye, and then you can help. He's not saying ignore what's going on in the lives of a brother or sister, or the life of a brother or sister that may hurt them, but he's saying tend to your life first, right? And we know this. Have you ever been approached by somebody who needed to bring something to your attention, who they themselves were a house that if, a doctor were looking at them, they would condemn them, right? I mean, everything in their life is on fire, and they're like, I need to take you to lunch and call some things to your attention, right? It doesn't land well, does it? At best, you're like, sounds good. You're buying lunch, though, right? At worst, you're like, get out of my face, right? You're an absolute walking mess. Um, now, what they have to share with you still may be true, right? But it's, it's like that busted-up family member who's always in debt trying to tell you what an idiot Dave Ramsey is. Uh, when you go through Financial Peace University and you're starting to get your house in order, you're like, brother, I don't take advice from someone who's always having to borrow money from people, right? This is what Jesus is saying. David Turner, who is a, a gospel scholar, says, Jesus clearly does not deny the existence of moral absolutes from which one can make absolute statements about right and wrong, good and evil. He's just saying, deal with yourself first. Now, this is just a good principle, isn't it? So let me give a bit of marriage advice that some of you may have heard me say, but you'll hear me say again and again. When you get married, the best principle you can go with is this when it comes to, to issues with you and your spouse. Pray for your spouse and work on yourself. All right? Pray for your spouse and work on yourself. And ladies are sometimes very good at this and very sneaky at this. Sharon has prayed me into all kinds of decisions that I thought I came up with. I was like, I had a fantastic thought. 
You know, and like three months later, she's like, I journaled about that a year ago. Committed it to prayer. So God turned your head. It's terrible. But that is a good rule of thumb. Pray for your spouse. Work on yourself. Pray for your spouse. Work on yourself. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, the way that he puts this in Romans chapter 2. This won't be up on the screens, but just listen. Um, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at every point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, right? God is competent to judge. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Right? It's not that there's no judgment. It's not that there's not one who judges. It's not that there will not be a time for judgment. It's simply that we're not the ones to do it. We've got enough going on in our own lives. And I think one of the complaints that the watching world does make about the church, and I think most often makes about the church rightly and fairly, is that we are far quicker to judge than we are to extend the love and grace we so quickly talk about. We're far quicker to judge. To look around from our sort of moral high horse while our own families, marriages, and houses are imploding anyway. And cast judgment on the culture around us instead of extending to them the kind of love, grace, and mercy that creates a soil where the Holy Spirit changes lives. We're quick to do it in our churches as well. Some of you will know the modern proverb, those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. I'll explain it for you if, if you're tied up because you might break your own house. Right? You might shatter your own house. Well, Jesus doesn't stop here. He goes on in a verse that would make us seem if it wasn't Jesus talking like he had drifted off onto some other train track. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, doesn't it sound honestly like Jesus has jumped tracks somewhere and he's, he, he's talking about something else. He knows where he's, he's going. I jump tracks all the time in what I'm thinking about and what I'm discussing. When Sharon and I first met and we were dating and engaged, we were, we were young married, it would be hard for her to follow along in a conversation. We'd be talking about something and then I'd pick up something else that we talked about a few days and comment on it as something came back into my brain on that and I'd move on. Now, like, we can go out to dinner and we're, we're talking about something and I'll comment, she'll go, hold on, okay, that was last Thursday, I'm with you now, go ahead right? She just, she could, she could stay with that flow because there are always multiple things going on in my mind at one time. My mind's processing different things. But Jesus isn't skipping around here, right? He, he doesn't have first century Palestinian ADHD. He knows what he's saying. And part of what he's doing here is he's reminding us of what I reminded us of at the very beginning, just to relieve some tension, that although I'm teaching you not to judge, not just teaching, I'm commanding you that you are not to judge the life of another. What I'm not saying by that is not to use spirit-empowered wisdom and discernment as you're going about living and especially doing kingdom work. Part of what Jesus is saying here is he references pigs and dogs, two, two creatures that would have been despicable 
to his Jewish audience. And when he talks about dogs there, he's not talking about your little pet, right? I saw a lady riding yesterday in a bicycle with a dog in the front basket. Some people just made different, right? Just made different. Never would I ride with my dog with me. But hey, if that's your jam, you go for it, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the mangy kind of semi-wild creatures. And if you've been to developing countries, if you've been to places in the third world, you've seen these kinds of dogs that just sort of roam about. Spotches, I'm not sure spotch is a word, plotch, spatter, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here. Little bits of hair missing all throughout them and they're tearing trash open and eating whatever they can find. Scavengers, this is what Jesus is talking about. Pigs would have been unbelievably despicable. What Jesus is saying here is that some people are so indifferent and so hostile toward Christianity and the church that you and I are not to waste our time. We are not to waste the greatest news that human beings will ever hear on people who are that indifferent and that hostile. Those who will have no appreciation or value for it. He's saying don't be critical, don't have a critical spirit, but do be discerning. Do be discerning. Our job is not to call someone to want what Jesus offers us. Our our, our calling is to share with everyone we can while discerning that God's already at work in the hearts and lives of some people. And you'll find some people very open to discuss things of faith. They've got questions. They're curious about your experience. Well, that doesn't come from them. That comes from the movement and the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus is saying, don't throw away this most valuable of all messages, of all things on those who have no appreciation for it, who don't care about it and don't care about you. A little later, he'd be talking to some of these same disciples and he'd say, hey, I'm about to send you out on mission and as you go man if you go into a village or a home and they don't want anything to do with you move right along shake the dust off your feet he was saying move with the movers move ahead with those that god is stirring in those who are responsive now i'll tell you i think this has wider implications i was thinking about this this week when i was uh when i was a young pastor those who who were the squeakiest in the church got the most attention from me Right? You're just constantly, because I think when you're, when you're a young minister, you really believe that somehow at some point you will have done enough, offered enough, uh, um, um, recreated things enough in the church that everything will be exactly as they want it and they'll be pleased and delighted. And somewhere along the years, by God's grace, there was this collision of experience, confidence in God, good mentors and, and guys who've done this a long time who just said, no, 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 don't worry about them, right? Uh, one of my greatest uh, uh, leadership proverbs comes from a guy named Larry Osborne who says, let squeaky wheels squeak. They don't squeak because they need oil. They squeak because it's in their nature to squeak. Part of what he's saying is don't waste your God-given time and energy on people who are never satisfied, right? They're always critical. They always want something else. N- nothing is ever to their liking. And you know, I mean, if you've been around the church, it doesn't matter what church. Every church has a certain percent of squeakers in it. And now they get so very little of my time. Because I know it just doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter. And I don't want to give that which God has gifted me with, energy and time and ability to, to those who value it least, right? So there are all kinds of applications to this. But Jesus is giving you permission now not to share the gospel with the drunk business guy next to you on a flight. Because he'll have no appreciation for it. Right? No appreciation for it at all. And some of you, and, and I have done this, I've shared some about this. Some of you have spent inordinate amounts of time trying to lead someone to faith in Christ who had absolutely no interest in what you were sharing with them. And God would just say, right, you're not responsible for anyone's salvation. You're not responsible for saving anyone. But for living in such a way that you can recognize where the Spirit is working and be used by God in those situations and circumstances. So I want to just, I want to help you because I know some of us feel this overwhelming need to, to try uh, to separate who's in and who's out, who's on the right path and who's on the wrong path. And judging uh, is a very real struggle for us. And I just want to remind you of some things. If you look in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, most of us know John 3.16. Most of us know John 3.16. But just in case you need a reminder... John writes and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Could we possibly agree that if, if Jesus' own role was not to condemn the world when he was sent, that you and I can probably relax some? That it's probably not our, our job to condemn anyone in our lives, to condemn the culture around us, to condemn the wider world. We could take a little break from our role as condemner-in-chief. Look at John 12. Turn back just a few chapters to John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 46 through 48. John chapter 12, verses 46 through 48. Jesus says here, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn him at the last day. So let me say again, if Jesus says, I don't even condemn those, I don't judge those who hear my truth and reject it, I didn't come to judge, don't you think you and I could take a breath and say, okay, if Jesus didn't come to judge, then I'm quite confident that it's not my role. I'm quite confident that it's not my role. There's nothing in my emulation of Jesus, in my attempt to be a follower of Jesus in my status as a disciple of Jesus by God's grace that calls me to be someone's judge. I can relax and take a breath. And I'll just tell you, it's very freeing to get to this point in your life. It's very freeing to just say, look, I'm free to love people. I'm free to extend grace and mercy. Because God hasn't called me to judge. In fact, God has specifically commanded me 
in multiple places in his word that I am not to do that. So I can relax. God will do his work in his time with or without me. God was here before me, right? And he'll be here long after me. He's eternal. He doesn't need any help from me in any area. But I I want us to take just a minute here, and I want us to place this this topic of judging others a little bit inside the the wider context of judge, of of there being a judge, and of judgment both in Scripture and in our culture, because I think it matters. And Jesus does it here. He says, I didn't come to judge. And then he says, there is one who will judge. And at the last day, that will take place. So part of what we realize here is like history is not cyclical, it's linear. Human history as we know it is moving toward a last day. And at that last day, God will be faithful to judge the living and the dead. Let me start here and just say a couple of words by way of two individuals about this idea of God being a judge and of there being a day of judgment. There are two sort of modern ideas that you and I will run into every day if we're talking to people who aren't sure about faith, not followers of Jesus, and sometimes even in the church. One is this idea that that they really believe, well, they don't want anything to do with God because if there's no judge or no judgment, then they're really free, right? Then they're really free to live life. And if we're honest, some of us have felt that and wrestled with that, and some of you may have even walked away from faith for a season of time thinking, I just want to be free of all this. But I was listening a couple of years ago to uh, Tim Keller reference a guy named Arthur Miller. Uh, I, I got really interested in Miller and began to read some of his works and read some about his life. He wrote a play called After the Fall. He's a 20th century American playwright. He also wrote, for some of you who will not be familiar, almost any of you probably familiar with After the Fall, he wrote Death of a Salesman. Does that ring a bell for some of you? So Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman. But what's interesting is uh, when After the Fall was on Broadway, and I know I'm, I'm talking past, the, like if you're under, I don't know what, maybe 60 in here, some of this may roll right over you so you can just Google it later. But Jason Robards played Quentin. Jason Robards played Quentin in this movie. Robards would go on. My favorite character that he played uh, was in All the President's Men. But Robards played in Faye Dunaway. So if you're 20s or 30s, you probably never heard of either one of those. But they were in this play called After the Fall. And Quentin, this character in After the Fall, that really Arthur Miller modeled on himself and his own journey, says something astounding. And I just want you to listen. Now, if this sounds a bit like gobbledygook, just ride with me, okay? I'll clarify it at the end. Quentin says this, For years I looked at life like a law case. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you have to prove how brave you are, how smart you are, how good of a lover you are. Then later on, you have to prove how good of a provider you are, what a good father you are, what a good husband you are. Then finally, you try to prove how wise you are, how powerful you are, how successful you are. But underlying it all, I see now, That in all of my arguing, there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation, towards some place of ultimate significance. I didn't know what it was, but all I knew is that I would be justified or condemned based on what I I had done. 
Either way, there would be a verdict. There would be a verdict. And then Quentin says, I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. There was no judge in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. Which, of course, is another way of saying despair. All that was left with an empty bench, with no judge in sight, was despair. And as he talks about this litigation, he's talking about all the arguing we do with ourselves and with others about why we matter and why this is better than that and why one should do this instead of that, why it's better to be kind to people, why it's wrong to oppress weaker people. But when Quentin looks up and he gets what he had wanted, which was no judge and no judgment, he finds out that there's no way to say one action is more meaningful than another. One action is better than another what he finds in short is that total liberation also means total insignificance where there is no judge and there is no judgment there is no purpose or meaning in life how many of you would sign up for season season tickets to the braves if there was no score kept that season they're just going to play for fun i don't ever like playing for fun i want to win or i want to win But I only want to play if someone's going to win and someone's going to lose, right? I mean, in in ways that are intuitive to us that we don't often think about, we understand that the score gives meaning to the game. The score gives value to the game. Now, thank God the score in the human game is not based on how good or bad I am, on how I behave, that the judge has taken upon himself all of the consequences for my sin and set me free in Jesus Christ. Quentin was speaking to this idea that roams around our culture today. That if we just get rid of a God who judges or this idea of judgment, then we're all free. We're not. Then we live in despair. Let me give you one illustration here from the other side. The the other wrong idea that we have about judging and judgment is this. That if you have a a judging God, then you're going to be an aggressive, divisive, violent, oppressive people, right? That if we believe in a God who judges, then we're necessarily going to be needing to press that God on others. And to impress our beliefs on them and to do whatever is necessary because we're right. Because the one who thinks they have the truth will eventually be aggressive and violent. This is a very common comment and thought among men and women who are not followers of Jesus. Like, I don't want anything to do with you because believing in a God who judges leads to all of this, this violence. That's what's wrong with the world. I want to share with you a, a brief passage from a Croatian uh, theologian named Miroslav Volf. Miroslav Volf. Um, I had to read a lot of Wolf in seminary. Jake probably did too. And at first I was like, man, he's one of those guys you read and you have to slow down and read the sentence again and read the sentence again. But he's a brilliant thinker and he's a great, um, he's a great follower of Jesus to bring faith into the public square. And if there's ever been a time in the history of our nation when we needed the Christian faith to be brought appropriately into discussion in the public square, it's right now. 
and Miroslav Volf is brilliant at doing this. Croatian theologian and thinker, thinker, as I said, grew up born in Croatia, family moved when he was five to a multi-ethnic, multicultural city in Serbia. Uh, and so he grew up seeing so much of the ethnic violence and warfare and cleansing that happened in the 80s and 90s in that situation. Here's what Wolf says about this idea that a judging God leads to a violent people. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. That for you and I to practice nonviolence requires that we actually believe in a God who does practice divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many people in the West, but imagine for a moment you're speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them as you speak is this, you should not retaliate? Well, why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, that the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. Now listen to this. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the idea that you can teach people to resist violence while also teaching them there's no God who will ultimately judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, this idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and would not make a final end to violence in those who perpetrate it, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Some of the, the problems with the way that we think about judgment and a judge is just we are not a people who have been oppressed. We're not a people who've lived under the heel of injustice, who've cried out to a God that we know is just. Anyone who thinks that the belief in a God who will one day bring an end to all injustice and pay back those who perpetrated it, if you think that leads to aggression, you likely have never actually been the victim of injustice. So what Wolf is saying is that without a God who judges, we are left as a society, we're not just left individually with a life that's meaningless, that has no point to it, but we're left as a society to the endless cycle of violence that stems from the need to avenge every wrong and perceived wrong. Church, we need to know that we follow a God who is both Savior and Judge. We need to know that one day it will be the last day. And judgment will happen. Judgment for all who've ever lived. And it will be right and just and fair. And God will balance the scales forever. Forever. That's the God we put our hope in. As the band begins to make their way back up here and prepares to lead us in a time just of, of response and reflection, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, where is your heart this morning? Are you prone to judge others? Are you prone toward a critical spirit? Are you 
prone toward making statements of final judgment about others, even if you're, you're not intending to make statements of, of final, eternal judgment about them. You're just prone to speaking of people who are made in the image of God and for whom Christ died in ways that relegate them to a position lower than yourself. Man, if that's you this morning, I just pray that as we sing, you'd confess that to God and ask Him to give you a new spirit today. Maybe you're somebody, maybe you're part of a generation or you're just of a mind that has, has been dismissive of this idea of there being a judge at all. You like to hold up Jesus' statements here, but you love to ignore what He says in other places, that there will, in fact, be a time for judgment and one who judges. And I would just challenge you then that you and I don't get to pick and choose what we take and leave from Jesus. That he's God. And he says what he says for our good. I'll leave you with this quote from Martin Luther. Be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. Be careful not to measure your holiness by other people's sins. Let's stand and pray.